Welcome back for another episode of the Happy at Work podcast with Laura, Tessa, and Michael. Each week, we have thoughtful conversations with leaders, founders, and authors about happiness at work. Tune in each Thursday for a new conversation. Enjoy the show. Welcome to the Happy at Work podcast. We're so excited to have Dr. Barry Schwartz here with us today. Welcome, Barry. It's a pleasure to be with you. It's a great topic. Awesome. Thank you so much. Well, where we'd love to start with you is tell us about your career journey. I know you've had an amazing career and maybe you know some of the books that you've written, you've written just, just really impactful books. So I'd love to share that with our, with our listeners. Sure, my pleasure. Um, although people who have come to know me in recent years would be surprised by this, my initial training was as a Skinnerian psychologist. I studied rats and pigeons doing things for food reward. And the reason I got interested in this was that I read this book that Skinner wrote called Science and Human Behavior. He wrote it 70 years ago. And I thought he was wrong. I thought it was an incredibly impoverished view of what people cared about. But I couldn't, I didn't have the tools to make the argument. You know, it felt wrong to me. It felt very incomplete and very reductive. So I decided if I was going to criticize this, I really had to learn it. And so that's what I did. And I got my PhD and my early research was mostly focused on pointing out empirically what the limitations were of the Skinnerian approach. And I did that for, you know, 15, 15 years. Um, and then thanks to teaching at Swarthmore College, where you interact with people outside your discipline a lot, a couple of philosophers who I became quite friendly with tried to teach me that this really wasn't just about the empirical limitations of Skinner's research program, that an entire social structure had been built along the lines of the Skinner box. The assembly line factory was the Skinner box. And what justified its existence was exactly the same set of assumptions that Skinner made. So that when Skinner was writing, he was watching people behaving like rats and pigeons all day, every day to get paid. And so it's not surprising that he would come to the conclusion that that's really incentives, you know, consequences are all that matters. And I had the hardest time understanding, you know, with my empirical foundations, what they were talking about. But finally, a light bulb went on. We wrote papers together, one of them called Skinnerian Psychology as Factory Psychology. I started reading people like Carl Polanyi, who wrote a book called The Great Transformation, which was about how the Industrial Revolution transformed the nature of work. And the new Barry Schwartz got born. And I spent the rest of my career working on the sort of social, structural predecessors of and implications of this Skinnerian incentive-based view of the world. So I wrote a book called The Battle for Human Nature. I wrote a book called The Costs of Living. Those books were read by nobody except blood relatives, which is too bad because they're really good books. 
And they were really about what happens when you start putting a price on everything. You know, there's the saying, economists know the price of everything and the value of nothing. Well, that's kind of true. And and when you start putting a price on everything, it doesn't just, it isn't just the economists who change in that way. It's the people who are working, who are, are having everything they do priced. It's hard to go to work every day with the same attitude that you had when there's a price attached to everything that you do, a cost accounting like approach to how you spend your workday. So I wrote those two books. And then I wrote this book that people do know me for called The Paradox of Choice, because the one justification for focusing on markets like this, on on economic markets, was that it caters to human freedom. And even if there are unfortunate effects, maldistribution of income, work that people don't like to do, and so on, maybe all of those are price worth paying because what you get for it is freedom of choice. Uh, and there's no system that compares to the free market system when it comes to catering to freedom of choice. And that, you know, that was a legitimate argument. And then this paper came out that showed that there can be too much choice. I didn't do the study. Sheena Iyengar became quite famous for doing the study. And that was all I needed. And so I wrote this book, The Paradox of Choice, Why More is Less, which was basically making an argument that freedom of choice is good, but there can be too much of a good thing. And when you have too much of a good thing, instead of being liberated by it, people are paralyzed by it, and they are dissatisfied with the choices that they make. So the net result is that you cater to freedom, and you're doing no one a favor by catering to freedom to this degree. Um, And then I wrote a book, this is more than you want, I know, I wrote a book called Practical Wisdom, which was about the importance of wise judgment in almost all forms of work that people do, and how a slavish devotion to rules and standard operating procedures on the one hand, and a slavish devotion to incentives on the other, was undermining the opportunity people had to develop wisdom and then display it. And so, in effect, what was happening is that occupations that required an enormous amount of judgment, wisdom, and intelligence were all being dumbed down so that bureaucrats could tick boxes and defend themselves uh, if they were ever challenged. Um, I wrote this book with a colleague named Ken Sharp. If I do pat myself on the back, it's a terrific book, largely unread. And then finally, I wrote a little tiny book called Why We Work, which was my attempt to take 50 years of thinking about these topics and put them you know, into a, a sort of a 100-page essay on how there's a kind of ideology about work that starts with Adam Smith and continues through scientific management of Frederick Winslow Taylor and, and the psychology of B.F. Skinner. The ideology is false, but if you create social institutions in its image, it becomes true because there's no reason for people to go to work except for the paycheck. And lo and behold, you look around and you say, see, everyone is going to work just for the paycheck. I was right all along. So and so there's a kind of insidiousness to psychological theory, which ha- which occurs when the theory gets articulated, you can evaluate it. But when it then gets applied to social institutions, it changes the way people behave in those institutions. And you can't evaluate it anymore because it looks true. 
And the reason it looks true is that it is true given the limitations of the institutions within which people work. And I thought that was really quite an important lesson that needed to be taught because it applies to lots and lots of things that psychologists do. They're relatively neutral and benign when they're discovered in the laboratory, but when they get applied, they have a transformative impact on how people act. And sometimes that can be good, but often it's not good. And people are blind to this effect of theory on practice. So you've now gotten, a, you know, I've been doing this for a long time. I got my PhD in 1971. So you've now gotten a 50-year capsule summary of my life. Well, I have to, I'm, you know, first of all, amazing career. And thank you for sharing it. I'm still kind of focus on the fact that you wanted to make a cohesive argument. So felt like you had to learn something first, which I don't think happens very often today. So, I mean, just an amazing career. So when you kind of think about what, what your focus is today, especially post-pandemic, kind of looking at the way in which we're operating today, you know, we work with students, you know, young people, Gen Z and younger millennials who we teach in our MBA classes who are, you know, just operating in such a different world than any of us kind of came up through our early adulthood. And so what's some of the work that's important to you today, your teaching that you're doing today? What what are some things that you're most passionate about? Well, you know, I spent almost my entire career teaching undergraduates at Swarthmore. And that had, there were two problems associated with that. One is that they were children. And the other is that they were mostly privileged children. So they just took it for granted that when they graduated, the world would be open to them and they could do whatever they wanted. And we didn't do anything to discourage that attitude, you know, it, because it was mostly true. Um, and the cold, hard reality of, you know, trying to make a living in a less than hospitable economy just never touched any of them. They just took it for granted that they were going to land on their feet. And virtually all of them did. Cut to my second career at teaching at the business school at Berkeley. These are grown-ups. They've been out in the workplace for a while. They're getting their MBAs. They have discovered, despite their good education and their talent, that there's an enormous amount of frustration and sort of bureaucratic impediment to doing what they think they ought to be doing. There's not enough trust in the workplace accountability is good, but there seems to be too much accountability and it ties everybody's hands. And so what they want is a job that they're going to care about, a job that's meaningful, a job that makes a difference. And one of the things I discovered, though people who work on this already knew it, is that it is particularly women who will not take a job for a paycheck. So if you want talent, and you don't want to exclude half the workforce, you have to create workplaces that are attractive to people who want the work they do to matter. You know, I think men got so socialized into being breadwinners and providers that it was kind of a luxury. It was the icing on the cake. But that was not the attitude of these talented women. They were going to make a difference. And they started to infect the men. And so at Berkeley, you know, the class I teach is an elective. So the people, I don't know what the people in finance do here, but the people who take my class, which is called work, wisdom, and happiness, they want work that they are going to be eager to show up at every day. 
They want work where at the end of the day, they can say to themselves that they've made somebody's life better in some small way. It could be an employee's life. It could be a customer's life. They they want, it's not just do no harm. They want to do something good in the world. And they think that the that the state has basically abdicated its responsibility or gotten so bureaucratized that it's in, incredibly ineffective. So there's space for the private sector to start doing the things that a better or effective state might do to improve the quality of life for citizens in as many ways as they can. And they don't need to be grandiose. You know, it's nice to cure, eliminate malaria from Africa, but you don't have to do something that big. There are lots and lots of small ways where having a certain attitude when you show up at work every day will make 10 people's lives better in the course of the day. And that's 50 people a week for 40 years. That's a lot of people whose lives get made better because of your relatively minimal input to ask yourself, what is this person's problem and how can I help solve it? Rather than what's the sale opportunity here and how can I close it? And that's what I encountered. And it gave me incredible optimism. And then COVID came. And it seemed as though it gave people permission in a way to act on their impulses and simply to refuse to work at jobs that they were going to regard as soul deadening. Now, you know, I'm not all that optimistic about this. I think all it's going to take is economic hard times and people will take whatever job they can get. But at least at this moment, the privileged continue to think that the buyer's market when it comes to work and they're able to say no unless employers are willing to meet certain conditions. And, you know, maybe they're right. You know, I kept expecting this to go away. It hasn't gone away yet, as near as I can tell. So so I'm really quite inspired by the attitudes that I see in these MBA students. I had all these stereotypes about how horrible MBA students were based on teaching at a liberal arts college. And they may be horrible, but the ones I teach are not Barry, that is, I love these insights. It's so interesting. And in our last episode was on Gen Z workers, and, and you're pretty much saying everything that, that they did. And I will say, I actually admire them because they really hold to their values. And it would be interesting to see if we hit like super bad economic times, will they will they continue with that? But I wanted to pivot a little bit and, and go into purpose. Could you tell us some, about your work on purpose and how you feel it's important to create great places to work? What role yes. does purpose have? So there's a psychologist who has spent much of her career at Yale in the business school, and she's just now leaving to go to Wharton, named Amy Resnuski. She and I have been collaborators for many, many years. It started when she was an undergraduate at Penn, and I was involved in her senior undergraduate thesis. And we developed this tripartite distinction between work as a job, work as a career, and work as a calling. And the argument we made, and we collected data that showed that people seemed to unambiguously assign their work to one of these three categories. And the interesting thing is that people who had careers looked like people who had jobs. The only difference between them is that people with careers thought they were on a trajectory, but it was really all about the sort of material and social signs that they were moving up a ladder. And it was really about moving up a ladder rather than what they did day to day. 
that motivated them. People with a calling, in contrast, and of course, calling is a religious term, being called by God to do something, they were interested in the work. They're, the question they asked themselves is, how can I make somebody's life better today? How can I do my job well? How can I achieve what Aristotle called the telos of my activity? What's the telos of being a teacher? What's the telos? Banks are in the news again. Who'd have thought it? What's the telos of being a banker? The idea that banks are public institutions who are custodians of the society's finances. Well, that went out the window 30 years ago with the end of Glass-Steagall. And it was a worldwide economic catastrophe. It wouldn't have occurred to bankers half a century ago to play fast and loose in this way. Banking was boring. You wa- Everybody wanted banking to be boring. And we compensated bankers for being boring and making sure that our money, they held our money for safekeeping and they made us mortgage loans or business loans or what have you. And then all of a sudden, somebody decided that banking should be exciting and uh, and produce outsized returns. And the result was a catastrophe. And so the telos of banking, the purpose of banking got transformed while no one was looking. And the result was a catastrophe. And I think we have a minor, you know, a very small scale version of the same thing happening now. It's not nearly as serious because the underlying um, financial instruments that wrecked the banking sector in 2008 are solid. You know, the mortgage crisis in 2008 simply wrecked the financial system entirely. And nothing like that is happening now. But there certainly is a crisis of confidence. And the crisis of confidence is a reflection that maybe bankers do not have the telos we think they do. And maybe we think they should. And maybe we need to re-regulate because you can't trust them to do the right thing because it's the right thing. And so what Amy and I try to do is um, is, re- is introduce purpose. I'm glad you mentioned the word purpose in particular, Michael, because in psychology, there's a kind of crude distinction that people make between, quote, extrinsic and intrinsic motivation. Extrinsic is all about, you know, promotion and raises and bonuses. Intrinsic is the fun of the work. And we think this really degrades what we mean by good work. Good work doesn't have to be fun, and it certainly doesn't have to be fun all the time, but it has a purpose. You know, if you're training to be an Olympic marathoner, much of what you do every day ain't fun. Uh, And yet you do it, and you do it because what you're trying to do is achieve excellence in a particular domain of human activity where everyone understands what excellence means. And taking performance-enhancing drugs to achieve that excellence would be a violation because there are right and wrong ways to achieve excellence. And the practitioners of you know Olympic running, say, have an agreement about what's right and wrong, about how you become an excellent runner. And people in banking have an agreement to the extent that the practice of banking is in good order, they have an agreement about what it means to be a good banker. And people in education have an understanding of what it means to be a good teacher. And people in medicine have an understanding of what it means to be a good doctor. And and it ain't fun, or it's not always fun. In fact, it's often not fun. 
But the what you're after is achieving the purpose of the activity as defined by the people who participate in the activity. And that, it seemed to us, is a much... So we call it internal motivation rather than intrinsic motivation. And the point we're trying to make is that the end, the ends you are aspiring to are peculiar to that activity. You know, you're going to get paid decently as a doctor. There are a lot of ways to get paid decently. There are not a lot of ways to cure the sick and prevent disease. Those aims are internal to the practice of medicine. And the practice of medicine is in good working order to the extent that people engaged in it are pursuing these internal aims. And, you know, they can go, they can go off the rails. They can go astray. You can't trust that the practitioners will always have their eye on the ball. So people from outside need to be looking at these practices to make sure that they're, that they're pursuing what they should be pursuing. But by and large, you trust the, I trust the practitioners to tell us why it is, what it is that justifies their existence and what counts as being good at that practice. So fun goes away. Fun, you know, it may be fun, but that's not why you do it. You don't do it because it's fun. You do it because it's meaningful and important. And, you know, one of the examples we use just to show that you don't need to be a brain surgeon is of hospital cleaners. You know, the people on the absolute lowest rank of the hierarchy in a hospital, they have a telos and and they believe correctly that if they don't do their jobs well, disease will be rampant in the hospital. And all of the efforts of these highly trained doctors and nurses will be undermined because of the not failure to maintain antiseptic conditions, you know, in a collection of extremely vulnerable people. And they think these doctors are busy and these nurses are busy. So if I can cheer somebody up while I'm cleaning his room, if I can sing him a song, that's not part of my job description, but it certainly ought to be part of my job because... If I leave people with a smile on their faces, it's probably going to contribute to their ability to recover from whatever it is has them in the hospital. And so not every hospital janitor has this attitude. Most of them are punching a clock and, you know, doing their long list of chores, but some of them do. And for those people, they're doing a different job. They're not doing the job that's on the job description. I mean, they're doing all those things, but they're doing something else too. And at the end of the day, they can leave the job feeling like they have mattered in the lives of people they've interacted with in the course of the day. So you don't have to be a brain surgeon in order to find meaning and purpose in your work. Though you can imagine a hospital with incredible pressure to meet meet bottom line requirements that starts assigning more and more rooms to the janitorial staff so that they don't have time anymore to stop and cheer up a patient. They have to go through the drill. They have to do all of the things that are on their to-do list. And there are too many rooms that need to be cleaned. And now what you've done is you've taken an opportunity to find meaning and purpose in work away from the staff in the interests of either real or perceived financial pressure. And you know that, so you can certainly screw things up if you're running the show. I gave a talk about this some years ago in Texas, and one of the people in the audience, a clearly very successful business person, was on the board of several hospitals in Houston, which is where I gave the talk. 
He came up to me afterward and he said, I'm going to put janitors on the hospital board. Clearly opened his eyes to the possibility that everyone engaged in the activity makes a significant contribution to its efficacy and effectiveness and should be taken seriously and treated with respect and given a fair amount of discretion and autonomy in how they do their work. So whether that actually happened, I don't know. The other people on the board probably thought he was nuts. I think, Michael, you're quite right about the centrality of purpose, but we need to think hard about what purpose is and who polices it. There's something elitist about letting doctors be the ones who tell us what the purpose of medicine is. You know, you want input from outside. You don't want it to be a guild that simply is uninterested in what everyone else thinks. On the other hand, I don't know much about art, but I know what I like shouldn't count as a criticism of contemporary art. If you don't know much about art, why do I care what you like? So while you want a root in from outside the profession, you want to give special deference, I think, to people who are practitioners in the profession. And you have people like us coming in from the outside only when the profession seems to have gone off the rails. That's amazing. Just so appreciative of that description of intrinsic motivation and why kind of the classic way we talk about that doesn't make as much sense relative to this conversation about purpose. That makes makes a ton of sense to me. It sort of parallels to me with like the difference between happiness and well-being. And you know, that well-being isn't always fun. Well-being is hard, but it's the stuff that matters, right? And so that damn yellow smiley face is the worst (laughs) thing that's ever happened. Completely. We've talked about that around just the name of our podcast, right? Like happy at work versus, you know, the stuff that's the hard part, but the very meaningful parts about work, right? But the Um, trick, I think, is to get people to understand that they need to mean something different by happy rather than getting rid of the word. The word's not going anywhere. Yeah. So the best you can hope for is to educate people about what, quote, authentic happiness could be. Yes. And what it requires. Sustainable. Yeah, completely. That's love that. So you were talking about, you know, some of the conditions for people to feel that sense of purpose. I was wondering, like, have you, what are some of the interventions you've seen organizations do or steps you've seen them take or things that they've communicated even that really the stage for people to feel, to have that room and space to create that purpose at work? Well, you know, I'm I'm really not an expert at this. Um, Amy Resnuski, I mentioned her a few minutes ago, has done work on what she calls job crafting, mm-hmm. which is the opportunity that people sometimes have to essentially redefine what they do, either by ch- literally changing what they do or by changing how they think about what they do, uh, reconceptualizing, reconstruing. Uh, and the and she thinks there's an enormous enormous potential to get satisfaction out of work to the extent that people can craft their jobs. And then the question is, what does it take to craft your job? And the answer, or there are a lot of answers, but it isn't enough simply for you to think about what you do differently. You know, I mean that that's that's the booby prize. I'm doing the same horrible work that I always did, but now I think I'm keeping patients from developing hospital bread infections by by being serious about mopping their floors. No, 
you know, it's helpful to think differently about your work, but you also need to have the discretion and autonomy to do your work differently. And that requires real change in the level of trust that exists between supervisory and non-supervisory people. You need to trust that the people you hire are there to do the right thing because it's the right thing. Make sure they have the tools to do the right thing and then let them do it. And, you know, here's an interesting factoid. Hospitals have M&M conferences, mortality, morbidity conferences, whenever a case goes bad to try to figure out why it happened and make sure it doesn't happen again. And they are mostly useless. And the reason they are mostly useless is that the attitude of the people who participate is cover your ass attitude. What they're there to do is mostly protect themselves from being assigned responsibility. You can change that atmosphere by making it clear that you are not interested in assigning blame. You are interested in improving the practice. And just saying it isn't going to matter. It's like the CEO making the speech to the annual speech to the shareholders where nobody takes it seriously because the day-to-day practices completely violate the highfalutin annual speech to shareholders. But but if you have the right sort of practice yourself as a leader in a hospital community or an M&M community, you can actually communicate to people that you mean it when you say, the aim here is to make sure that this particular failure does not happen again. How can we prevent it going forward? What standard operating procedures can we adopt? You know, Tul Gawande wrote a book called The Checklist Manifesto, and there are certain kinds of things where it makes absolute sense to have a checklist and for everybody to be watching. There's no excuse for a surgeon to go into the operating room without having scrubbed up adequately, and everyone should be watching what everyone else is doing to make sure that everyone is scrubbed. There should be zero failures there. There's no excuse for any failures. But that's not what most of medical practices, that's what some of medical practices and having checklists so that those things don't go wrong makes sense. But then thinking you can come up with a checklist for everything is where things go off the rails. So what's what's interesting about what you're talking about, Barry, is you know, from an institution systemic way in which a company can support and put these systems into place to operationalize purpose. What advice would you have for a manager who might want to think about the way they operate and run their own team within a larger context of a company or a nonprofit or any type of organization? What are some things that they can really do in their, you know, in more of a micro setting to To be able to bring that purpose if it's not really systemized throughout the organization or the company? Well, that's a very hard question. Google's purpose was to provide everyone in the world with all the world's information. That was its purpose. Its purpose was not to produce a generation of app addicts. Facebook's purpose, I'm not sure that Facebook ever really had a purpose aside from raiding women, but Facebook's purpose was to create a new social universe that enabled people to interact with one another. It was not to get people to spend six hours a day on 
Facebook and Instagram, and similarly Twitter. And in the early days of Twitter, people were agog at what a political organizing tool Twitter seemingly was becoming. And it kind of was. The trouble is that the way you make money in all of these endeavors is to, is to you know, the coin of the realm is attention. And anything that you can do to keep people on your site is going to increase your ad rates, increase your revenue, increase your share price. And we know now that this was deliberately engineered with research and development to see what we could do with our site to make it essentially impossible for people to leave it. It didn't have to have malign effects on people. It could have just been benign. It could have been neutral. It could have been a waste of an incredible resource. It turns out it's not benign. It actually wrecks people's lives, especially adolescent girls. There's a psychologist named Jonathan Haidt who has made this a mission at the moment that shows that the incredible uptick in serious mental illness corresponds almost perfectly with the uptick in social media use that started around 2012. And it is particularly affecting pre-adolescent and young adolescent girls, although not only them. So for him, it's a clear as day that the consequence of this is far from benign. We are creating basket cases in the service of the attention economy. Now, there are exceptions to this. And there's a wonderful exception called Wikipedia. And the reason I mention it, Wikipedia has got a lot of problems, you know, but Wikipedia started out with a mission and a structure that was intended to preserve the mission. It is not interested in eyeballs. It is not interested in making money. It is a not-for-profit entity. And despite the deformation of every other thing, every other online app that I'm aware of, Wikipedia today is basically the same as it was when it started. And that's because it never got to keep the main thing the main thing. And it didn't trust that it would simply take care of itself. It put practices and controls in place so that there were no, in, there were no temptations for people to go off the rails. And if people did go off the rails, they were booted out, you know? So it's, I, I was on a, gave a talk with Jimmy Wales, also giving a talk years ago. And, and I cornered him and I said, are you worried about what Wikipedia is going to be like when the next generation of leadership takes over, maybe doesn't have your vision? And he wasn't in the least bit worried because he was confident that the kind of socializing they were doing as they brought new people in was so deliberate, so self-conscious, and so strong that the next generation and the generation after that would preserve the commitments that he had started Wikipedia to try to honor. And, you know, I thought he was being incredibly naive. And uh, so far, knock on wood, seems like he's right and I'm wrong. So these things don't happen by accident. They happen because people are mindful of what the pitfalls are, and they put practices in place that are designed to protect against those pitfalls. And they basically give the finger to shareholders who are not the least bit interested in purpose. They're interested in return. So I think it just, you can't 
take it for granted that having come up with a great idea that will enhance wealth, human welfare, you can just now wind it up and let it run, and it will continue to be a great idea that enhances human welfare. There are too many people out to wreck it, and they will succeed unless you pay attention. Barry, these are such great insights and advice for our listeners. And it reminds me that when we interviewed Dr. Bob Langer, the co-founder of Moderna, we asked him, how do you keep people focused on meaning and purpose when COVID was going crazy and everyone's working seven days a week? And he said, it wasn't a problem. We hire people for meaning and purpose. And when COVID came, they thought it was an opportunity to do their life's work. They have stayed on task. So it's it's really interesting how this is falling in line. But I wanted to just finish up the show first by saying thank you so much for, for the lecture. <laughs> this is great stuff. I love it. Any wisdom that you would like to leave our listeners with as we close out the session? Well, there's one thing, and, and the Moderna example um, uh, made me think of it. Jeffrey Pfeffer. He has a wonderful book that's now almost 20 years old, and he, he has the following insight in the book. Companies should hire people on the basis of attributes they don't know how to train and then train the things they do know how to train. Nobody knows how to train integrity, character, honesty, and commitment. We know how to train people to use Excel spreadsheets. The reason this is counterintuitive is that if I hire you because you are of splendid character you're going to contribute nothing to the company until you learn the shit that I hired you to do. On the other hand, if you know how to do Excel spreadsheets, you will be generating revenue from day one. So if your aim is to make make it pay when you make a hire, you're going to hire the people who already know how to do what you need and then cross your fingers and hope that they have the attributes that you really care about. We don't know how to teach people to have character, virtue, integrity, and commitment. We want people to have that. I think probably it's parents who play the biggest role in the cultivation of those attributes. If you find, and we may think we found somebody who has those attributes and be wrong. These are hard things to measure. Nobody's a perfect judge of character. If you find people who have these attributes, just hire them and then figure out how to use them productively in your organization, because they will contribute immeasurably to the welfare of the organization going forward, whatever it is they end up doing. So that was Pfeffer's insight. As I say, it's counterintuitive, but it seems to me that it's right. And if Moderna had been doing that all along, hiring people on the basis of their commitment to meaning and purpose, and then trusting that they would find a way to contribute to the company going forward, then hats off to them. And it isn't an accident that they've saved millions of lives with their vaccine. And it is an opportunity. You know, you hire all of these people and here's their chance to do their life work, right? It's a, this is not an opportunity you hope for, obviously, but here it is. It smacks you in the face and you have a chance to make a contribution to the world that you never probably imagined would fall into your lap in the way that COVID fell into the laps of the people working at Moderna and at Pfizer. So, so that I think is really useful. Hire people who have the traits that you want and don't know how to teach. I have to ask a follow-on if that's okay. With regard to 
this debate that higher education's having around, you know, really catering to these Coursera and these skilling certificates and the fact that skilling and tech skills and digital skills should become the priority versus teaching liberal arts education or teaching these other types of education. What do you say to higher ed or to companies who are really just focused on skills right now? Because that is probably 90% of the conversations I'm involved in is how do we skill for the future, not how are we creating humans (laughs) to think for the future? What is your, what are your thoughts on that? It's very, very short-sighted. I don't know if you read it. There was an article in the New York Times this past weekend about the precipitous decline in literature majors. Humanities are dying on college campuses all over the place. And it's partly because I have no confidence that they can make a living. And they're not wrong about this because the people who hire them are very short-sighted about who they should be looking for. I think that institutions, liberal arts colleges like Swarthmore, are missing an opportunity to proudly claim that what they are about to a large degree is not skilling, but character formation. You go to college to become a person. You go to college to become a mensch. And people are embarrassed to say that because who is to say what being a mensch is? Why why do you get to impose your values on my kid? So it seems neutral to say, no, we'll teach you how to code and do Excel and various other things and you can get a job. And, you know, your formation as a person, that's up to you and your friends and your family and what have we have. We are collectively showing a failure of nerve by refusing to proudly articulate that a significant component of what university education is about is the formation of character. And there is no substitute. No set of skills is going to make up for bad character. So that's my view. And it sort of having spent my whole life teaching at a liberal arts college, it really makes me sad that there is this failure of nerve. Um, But there is, and with this assault that is now going (laughs) going on in certain parts of this country. It takes a certain amount of fortitude to fly in the face of the attacks that are being leveled and say, no, 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 you have it exactly wrong. And the way we do things exactly right. And we're going to keep doing it even. My wife said to me today, she wants places like Swarthmore College to say they will no longer admit students who go to public schools in the state of Florida because they are no longer being educated. Wow. They don't want to admit uneducated people to Swarth. <laughs> now, is that ever going to happen? I doubt it. But if, if, if prestigious institutions collectively were to say something like that, it would change the conversation overnight. Completely. completely. I don't think anyone has the nerve to do it. You know, Swarth was really not in that kind of position. Harvard, Yale, Princeton, Stanford are in the position. Yeah. But they're way too worried about their reputation and their endowment yeah. to take a shot at it. But that That seems to me, I don't know if you saw this, but there's a version of a textbook that has been trotted out for elementary school that uh, mentions the Rosa Parks incident and does not mention that Rosa Parks was black. She wanted to sit in a different seat and they wouldn't let her. Now, that's not the only version that's being floated. Their textbook companies are trying to figure out what they're going to have to do in order for the state to buy 
So I, I commiserate with you. And the short-sightedness of the people who run companies is somehow an obstacle that needs to be overcome. Pfeffer told them 20 years ago that this was the wrong attitude to have. It is the wrong attitude to have more now than ever before, since almost certainly the job you get hired to do won't exist in another decade. And okay. so you, you want people who have the intelligence and the motivation to stay on top of whatever it is the work demands and be committed to doing it excellently rather than assuming you know what the work's going to demand in a decade because you don't. Barry, every single time I'm around you, you just, there's so many amazing things that you bring up, so many great insights and so many ways you connect things. We're just so grateful for you to be with us today and just thank you so much for your time and for your ideas. It's really been a pleasure. I love thinking about this and talking about it, especially to friendly audiences. <laughs> <laughs> well, we are for sure. Awesome, Barry. Well, thank you so much.